it's like the chronic disease of the chronic disease. For one, it will bring on other chronic diseases. <laughs> so it will bring on the hypertension. It will bring on the cholesterol because they used to consider it at one point in time a few years ago just as a physiologic disorder. Now they're actually saying that it's a cardiometabolic disorder. Oh, I gotta go. I've been working, told them please don't hit my phone. I'm in my zone, bruh, just leave me alone. Was on the road, but I swear I'm coming home. Now the drinks on me, I think we need a toast. See, I did it for me. Now my old friends calling, told them nothing's for free. Told me time is money, dog, swear I paid all my fees. I was starving for this game, now my fan they can't eat. Hey everyone, welcome to the Cup of Nurses podcast with your hosts, Peter and Matt. We are nurses on a mission to change the world, one conversation at a time. So let's jump right into it. If you find value in this show and want to join us on a mission, please share and review the show. It would mean everything to us. Cupofnurses.com for any of the updates, latest merch releases, and what are we up to. For our lifestyle podcast, check out wearefrontlinewarriors.com. Another amazing guest for y'all today. Her name is Kimberly Ellis. Kimberly Ellis is a family nurse practitioner and diabetes care and education specialist specializing in chronic disease prevention and management, patient and provider engagement, and culturally responsive care in marginalized communities. Her consulting firm, Ellis Diabetes Education and Consulting LLC, assists health organizations to develop clinical initiatives, strategies, and implementation aligned with the quadruple aim of healthcare to improve health outcomes in their unique demographics. Stay tuned for a lot of amazing and great diabetes education. Hey, Kim, welcome to the show. Can you give us a little background about yourself? Yes. So, well, I'm Kim and in these inter, uh, internet streets, people call me Kimmy, the diabetes MP. And um, I've been a registered nurse for about 14 years, um, an MP for about 10 years. Mm. And probably in the last couple of years, I, well, I'll say about three or four years, I really dove, dove deep into diabetes management and education and then got certified. Mm. And so um, uh, the bulk of my background has been rather rural America or urban America, nothing mm. in between. So I'm from Tennessee. And so all my training was in Appalachia, America. So in the hills and the mountains and West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, East Tennessee. So that was very interesting because you don't have a lot of resources. And then fast forward, I moved to an urban area. I'm in Dallas, Texas. And so it's very inner city. So lots of marginalized populations in both areas, you know, both sides. So um, decided to become a nurse practitioner really solely because of my personality. You know, I really like to have time with patients and talk with people and you know um and i i just love i have a lot of background across the lifespan and so as i was practicing as a nurse practitioner a lot of people were asking me a lot of questions about different medicines they were seeing on the internet yeah. on you know all the commercials and stuff like that and really honestly i couldn't keep up with it and so just taking it upon myself like you know what let me educate myself and then just thought it would probably be better for me to get certified because I was doing in-home visits and so I had a lot of opportunity to educate patients and mm -hmm. so that was the that's 
pretty much me in a nutshell. <laughs> and I work in, in both in Appalachia and then a, a bigger state environment. Did, did you find a lot of uh, similar issues that the patients deal with and the community deals with? Yeah, yeah. And like, so one thing that's actually kind of, it's, it's weird to not hear people talk about Appalachia America, but it's like very niche and very, it's a very unique population. Everybody doesn't get, get to take care of them. You know, mm. um, most, most of the time it's because they like to stay in the mountains <laughs> and they're not very trusting, you know, and it's a, I don't know if you're very familiar with the, you know, with the population, but it's a culmination of a lot of different cultures, like French, African, um, Irish, and so you have this whole set of people who are just moonshiners, you know, bootleggers, and they still do it. They not <laughs> it, but you still, they still do it. Um, and they, there's just in the mountains, people get snowed in and they can't get to hospitals. Um, lots of them don't have many hospitals in the area. So I worked at a trauma one uh, center in Knoxville, but that was the only one for maybe the next state, you know, you had to go down to Atlanta to get to the next trauma center, you know? So that's a lot of area for them to, you know, cover. And so you still have socioeconomic issues, lots of SDOH, social determinants of health, food insecurity, housing insecurity, mm -hmm. you know, it's just, one's just rural, one's just urban. Mm -hmm. Did they suffer from like the same comorbidities for the most part? And uh, you said one of the, the issues was like the, the, the trust, the trust issue in particular, people didn't want to go to hospital. Were they scared or what was like, what, what was their fear about it? So you, I, I don't think that people understand so much how much medical mistrust is in our country. And it's not just with minorities. It's with pretty much everybody, honestly, because I mean, if, you, if we're honest with ourselves, I mean, there's been a lot to happen that we can say people probably are side-eyeing us, you know? Mm -hmm. And so you have these cultures that have been farmers. They're, you know, they do a lot. They take care of themselves and their families take care of themselves. So then you bring in somebody who is highly educated that's probably talking over their head that, you know, maybe making them feel like they're not smart enough or you, you don't know enough. And so... You know, just human nature, people just will just keep to ourselves and they keep to their communities. Mm -hmm. And so that's where you'll have a lot of people that you'll have like, you know, the community doctor, you know, but it's really not a doctor, you know, but it's a person that does a lot of like alternative medicines and things like that, complementary things, you know, people make making tinctures and growing stuff and making creams and oils and stuff like that, like that's a real thing in our country even today that's not of the day the days of old you know and so yeah they have they have huge i actually did a consulting job an education consulting job like focusing on appalachia america because there's a lot of you have to deal with a lot of drug issues as well um opioid crisis we dealt with that heavily in east tennessee like lots of meth Lots of things like that, broken homes because of that. You know, you can start thinking about, okay, so drugs, what does that lead to? And then what would that lead to? So lots of grandparents raising grandchildren and, you know, lots of obesity. And it's, it doesn't look like what we see on TV. You know, you, 
kind of put that picture on like black people and you know hispanic you know population but no like that's a an american issue actually you know and there's pockets all over our country that's like that mm. especially when the cdc announced that almost one-third americans are pre-diabetic which is about 88 million people so mm-hmm. what point in your career did you decide to specialize in preventive medicine when it comes to diabetes well because it's like everybody that I was talking to, they rather were at high risk for it or they had it and they didn't know it or they were already in the the phase of prediabetes. And so I found myself, that was pretty much all I was talking about. I wasn't, of course I was getting to other stuff, but like with every single patient, we're talking about like lifestyle modifications. We're talking about like how to eat, you know, and how to retrain ourselves with thinking. And again, that's actually an American thing because when you look at our portion size compared to other countries' portion sizes, you know, and what do we do when we finish eating? We lay down, you know what I'm saying? Where other cultures, they get up and they take a walk after they eat after every meal, you know, just different things like that, you know, but you have to retrain yourself. And so, and especially when you're dealing with like the older generation, you know, like my father, He's a meat and potatoes man. Like he's like a little kid trying to eat vegetables, but that's his generation is like that, especially males, you know, like they're not going to be eating salads. (laughs) They're not going to eat kale. You know, they don't know what quinoa is, you know, and they don't want to know about it, you know? And so I just, I felt like it was a need. I felt like there was a definite need for it because, and then when I started looking up resources to help, do some care coordination, I couldn't find any resources. Mm. So there weren't a lot of dietitians in the area. There weren't a lot of diabetes prevention programs. There weren't a lot of um, diabetes, like self-management education programs. And so then I was like, well, there's a need and this is a big area. So why not me? Mm. You know? What was the, the biggest hurdle with diabetes education, what was like the parts that they were least informed on? Was it the, the, the diet, like you're saying, the vegetable portion? They didn't know how, how to count their carbs. What was like the biggest barrier for them? So really, honestly, like a little goes a long way. Mm-hmm. And I think people have in their mind that you have to do like this earth shattering change of life. And that's really not even the standard, actually. Like the, the standards of care, like if you even just lose like, of your body weight, that will drop your A1C significantly. And if you did 10, you can drop it more than metformin can. Mm. So when you start telling people, especially people who don't, because the average person doesn't want to be on medicines, you know, our patients, they don't want to take medicines, you know, well, when you start saying, well, you know, hey, lifestyle modifications, these are what lifestyle modifications are, and they can drop your A1C one to even 2%, mm. even better than metformin. Mm. People are like, well, let me, <laughs> let me consider that. So just starting to like sit down and actually spell it out with people. But one thing that I noticed with a lot of my colleagues is that we're in this hustle and bustle of our day. And it's always this, well, eat better and work out. Well, what do people, what does that mean to a lay person? They don't really know what that means. You know, you tell them more protein. I literally, no lie, had a patient thinking that them eating nutty, nutty butters because they had, it had peanut butter in it 
was giving them protein. So it's like that type of stuff. Like you don't think that, but people, we have to spell it out for people. Mm -hmm. And then they can start saying, you know what, that's not, I can do that. You know, I can do that a little bit. I can give up sodas. You know, mm -hmm. I can do this. I can do that. And just working where, where they're meeting them, where they're at. Mm -hmm. I think that's a big issue in healthcare that we're not educating patients properly. It could be from diabetes to CHF and they have no idea how to take care of themselves. And then they feel this issue of feeling hopeless. And just like you mentioned, there's so much diabetes in healthcare when you're in the hospital and you're taking care of patients, you have five, four patients, you're trying to figure out who's on AccuCheck's and you're trying to organize your time around sugar, sugar checks because it has become such a big part of healthcare. So kind of taking a step back, what is the physiology of diabetes? How does one become pre-diabetic? What happens and what happens when you become diabetic? So there is something called an ominous octet. And so that basically in a nutshell, it's basically like eight dysfunctions that can cause in your body that can cause hyperglycemia for whatever reason. You know, your pancreas is not putting out enough insulin or maybe the hormone that tells your body that you're full is not working, <laughs> you know, something like that. Your muscles are not um, as sensitive to insulin as they're supposed to be. So it's all these different dysfunctions that can happen. But typically when you're dealing with diabetes type two, you're dealing with insulin resistance. You're, you're most likely some type of way. And that can come on by many different things. Mm -hmm. So it can come on by other conditions um, that, that you're predisposed to such things like women having um, PCOS. Uh, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, it could be that you're taking a heavy dose of some type of medication. There are um, psychotropic uh, medicines that, you know, the heavy ones can really put somebody in insulin resistance, you know, and it's all because, and this is not necessarily because of, you know, how they look, it's because of the medicine that they're taking. Mm -hmm. And then of course, our lifestyle here in America is a big part of it as well. Um, and then there is a genetic component as well. You know, I've definitely seen quite a bit of people who are very thin, who um, develop diabetes type two, and it's just something that's very heavy in their family. Mm -hmm. So the insulin resistance is that built up over time, or is it just like a one and done kind of situation? How does that that play a role in it? So typically with your insulin resistance, especially with insulin type two, mm -hmm. the reason why it's such a big a push to prevent it and have early detection is because you actually are starting to show signs of hyperglycemia mm. like almost eight to 10 years before you're actually diagnosed. Mm. So that is why, like, you know, even now with the, the current ADA standards of care this year, they changed it to all patients should be screened at 35. Last year it was 45. So they went up for 10 years and that just happened this year mm -hmm. because they are seeing that people were not picking it up early enough because I always tell people pre-diabetes is like a warning shot. Like you're at the fork in the road. Like you can make a decision which way you want to go. And, you know, I had a, quite a bit of patients that feel like it's in my family. So I'm just going to get it. I'm like, no, that doesn't have to be your fate. You know what I'm saying? Like that doesn't have to be your fate. 
you know, and even if you do happen to develop it, it doesn't have to be so severe as that lump that had the amputation, you know what I'm saying? And so, you know, so um, insulin resistance is something that happens over time. And so that's why when we do diagnose, people have been, they have actually proven that people were starting to see signs very early on and had no symptoms. Are you able to check if you're becoming insulin resistant through regular AccuCheck? So an example is if I buy a glucometer at home and I fast for six hours and my blood sugar is like 110, that means I have a issue digesting and processing glucose. Is that a way to do a, like a self-check at home? Well, when you have a glucometer, it's like a spot check. Mm. So that's why we lean more so towards like your A1Cs because that gives us more of, and that's still the golden. It's not perfect. It's not a perfect measure. You, you can read lots of arguments in the industry, people, you know how the medical people can be, you know how we can be sometimes, but that's all, that's the best that we have is still the golden standard, mm -hmm. but it's, there are certain conditions that it's not reliable. And a lot of people don't know that either, you know, that's why then you also have the OGTT test, which is the oral glucose tolerance test, which you tend to not really see a lot unless you're a pregnant woman who is getting tested, that glucose test that they always give, but you actually can give that to patients as well. And basically what you're doing is giving them a very heavy dose of glucose, and then you're testing their blood sugar like two hours afterwards. And basically that's seeing how your body breaks down that glucose. Like it's a very large, like I think 75 grams of like just straight sugar. <laughs> it's just, it's disgusting. I've had to do it with both of my children. It's disgusting. But they take, your, they take you at fasting, they take you at one hour, and then they take you at two hours. And you're supposed to hit a certain threshold. And that's what lets them know that your body is breaking it down properly. Mm -hmm. yeah, the, I see diabetes as like a silent killer. In the beginning stages, you don't really know you, know you have it. And you might, you might have it for a long time with, with it being going with it being going unnoticed because most people that are hyperglycemic, they don't really feel different. Maybe they'll mm -hmm. get like an occasional headache that they might associate just like stress or something else, but they never go to the doctor or get it checked out, especially in, in, in Appalachia, but not just in Appalachia because even in, in city environments, people tend to, to, to not know they have diabetes until it's kind of too late. So why is it so important to, to prevent diabetes and how can it harm you in the long run? Because really, honestly, diabetes affects every area of your body, like the complications, like there, it's like the chronic disease of the chronic disease. For one, it will bring on other chronic diseases. <laughs> so it will bring on the hypertension. It will bring on the cholesterol because they used to consider it at one point in time a few years ago, just as a physiological, uh, physiologic disorder. Now they're actually saying that it's a cardiometabolic disorder because it affects every organ of your body from your eyes to your skin, to your nerves. You know, you're, I mean, like people go blind, people lose limbs. You can have, you, you're put at risk for stroke, heart attack, all these things. And so that's part of the education as well, is that like, there's this big cloud. It's like, dum, 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 diabetes. People automatically think that if you have diabetes, oh, I'm gonna have an amputation because people have this snapshot of like their grandmother or their grandmother's friend who had 
But, and I have to tell people, by the time it gets to that point, most likely that person was like completely ignoring mm. what they should have probably been doing. They probably weren't taking medicines. They probably were having symptoms for a very long time, probably weren't going to the doctor. You know, that's when I see that it's like very poorly managed at that point when you get to that point. And so, and people also are afraid of needles. They also associate, if I have diabetes, I'm automatically going to have to give myself insulin shots, which is not true either. You know, it's not true either, but you may, you know, but that's not, that's not a definite either. Is there like an, an is there like an ideal time to measure your sugar? Because in a hospital, we put some people on ACHS, uh, measure before meals. Some people are on a, on a Q6. Is there like a proper, you could say formula or just uh, the, the best method to want to check your sugar? So I'm glad you're talking about like the difference between inpatient and outpatient. So when someone goes into the hospital, there's actually a protocol, like your body basically is on fire because <laughs> you're sick, you know? And so it's going to, your body is going to react is, as a, a coping mechanism. It's going to make that glucose go up. That's just kind of the normal thing. But in outpatient, if you're not on insulin, it's really not even recommended for you to really check your blood sugar other than just to know how food and your lifestyle manipulates it. And actually insurance doesn't even cover the strips like that because you're not on insulin, you know? So it's more so, so you can say, they, maybe you can check it. I think Medicare covers like maybe 90 strips over, like I think- yeah, I think like 90 strips over 90 days or something like that. So it's like, really, you can check it like once a day. And really what I tell people is like, maybe do it when you're fasting, because like first thing in the morning, um, because we always want to correct fasting first. Mm. Um, and so you fasting is always where you would want to do it. And then sometimes people will want to check two hours after they eat, because that is when that's the best optimal time is when you have taken in some type of glucose, carbs, something is two hours after to see how your body, your body's supposed to compensate after that. But for the average person, you, you are, you can get a glucometer, but more than one time a day is really not necessary. Now, if you're on insulin, you do need to know, you'd be surprised. Many people are just giving themselves a, a medicine that can bottom them out without knowing what they are, you know? And so I tell people, you need to know what you, what your number is before you inject, you know, because you don't know what you are. You could literally bottom yourself out. And so, yes, you would want to check more frequently then. And then once you get up to a point where you're taking more than four injections a day, which is very intensive insulin therapy, you would qualify for an insulin pump. Mm -hmm. So Kim, let's just say I, I see at the clinic and I check my A1C or we do the oral test and I'm pre-diabetic. Mm -hmm. What is some education you would provide me before I get on medications to reverse my diabetes? And question, is diabetes reversible? Okay. So we'll take the prevention stuff first. So I always like to tell people this is a golden opportunity for us because now here's your warning shot. We have three months to get on board, okay, um, per the guidelines. So first things first is I will immediately start talking about lifestyle modifications. I personally like to spell it out, like what is physical activity? 
And yeah, sedentary, being sedentary is working out less than three times a week. And so really, honestly, the recommendation is 150 minutes a week. So you can do that. And if you're somebody who already is working out, like you're already, it goes down to 75 minutes because you're working out already. You know what I'm saying? So they're already saying if you're a runner, you're probably running more than 75 minutes anyway. But if you're just getting started, they want to up it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so then I always calculate how much they would need to lose. And so when I actually show people like the small amount of weight that they have to lose, people feel like that's very doable. Like I said, five to 10% of your body weight, that's really it. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, most people can do that over a span of six to 12 months, you can get off five to 10% of your weight if you're committed. Um, I like to talk to them about what they eat because I don't like when providers are just like, well, you need to do this, 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 and that. Well, we don't all eat the same. So like you may be a person who loves sweets, but I'm a person who loves sodas, you know, and you may be a person that you'll do, you'll do, um, maybe you like fried foods and you need to incorporate. So you wouldn't know that unless you're talking to them, like, how is your eating pattern? Because I think when we come in and we start taking all these foods away, it's like, well, dang, what am I going to eat? Mm-hmm. You know, but when you're actually tailoring it to what the person actually eats and says, hey, you know let's try to decrease this soda intake, you know, and don't take it away all at once, you know, cause that's, that's going to be failure. So quick question, Kim, for that, for that five to 10% uh, drop in weight, is that a general rule that you go by or mm-hmm. is it like a specific formula that, that, that you use? It is based off a landmark tra- okay. trial that they did back in the nineties mm-hmm. where they had, where they had people where they followed, I want to say they followed them for about 10 to 20 years. It was a very, very big trial Mm -hmm. and that's what they base the diabetes prevention program off of and so you have to hit all those benchmarks to get to be in the diabetes prevention um, program that's the goals for them but it's based on a whole landmark trial that they have tried to redo multiple times and it's still the same thing it's just very minimal weight loss just minimal weight loss can do big impact Mm -hmm basically. So you don't have to get all 50 pounds unless you just want to, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and as far as like reversible. So I don't really, I think the better word would be remission Hmm. because when you put in the, when you say the word reversible, it puts the mindset that it's gone away forever. But if that person goes back to doing those bad, those bad behaviors, diabetes will come back. Mm-hmm. So remission is anything where a person is not taking medication up to, I believe, like a year. But again, if they start back the bad habits, diabetes will come back. Mm-hmm. So we, I think the better word is definitely remission because reversible means that it's gone for good. And it's not like even if the treatment plan is lifestyle modifications, that's still a treatment plan. Like mm-hmm. it's not treatment doesn't have to mean medication. Treatment can be this is your treatment plan. We're going to be going to a dietitian. You're going to get, have a prescribed exercise program and you're going to continue to do this for the rest of your life. That's what lifestyle modifications are. So yeah, remission, yes. I have seen plenty of people come off of insulin and medication, uh, pills, oral pills. 
Is there a point where you go too far where you can't go back to remission? Is there a point of diabetes where you cross the line way too much where you have to be on chronic medications and it's not reversible quote? Yeah, there, I will tell people this, like, we don't have a magic wand to say who those people are going to be, you know? So we're just, what we do is individualize the goal. And so, and it also is where your entry point is. Some people come in and they're at an 11, you know, mm -hmm. and per the guidelines, we have to go ahead and be aggressive, you know, um, but, you know, that to say that people can't come down more, but, you know, it really is one of those things about empowering the patient. Um, and that's a big part of the prevention and the management is that I am just your guide, but this is your care, you know, so what is it that you want to do, you know, and we'll go from there. And I think if providers can take that approach better, you don't get so upset with your patients when you have done all this work and then they come back in and they didn't even pick up the prescription that you provided. But did you even ask them what was important to them? Mm. Did you even ask like, what was their goal? And then you have that conversation and y'all collaborate together. I had a patient that she was having a lot of lows like at night, hypoglycemia, big no-no. You always gotta treat hypoglycemia. Mm. Um, but as I'm talking to her and I'm looking at her, her numbers and stuff like that, I'm asking her like, what's important to you? And I know immediately I wanted to say, well, we need to get some weight off. We need to do this, we need to do that. And she was more concerned about like having lows at night, because if you have a low while you're sleeping, you can slip into a coma and that scared the mess out of her. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, well, our short-term goal is let's get you out of these lows. And then our intermediate goal can be, let's try to get you off this medicine that is making you, you know, go low, mm -hmm. you know, and we were just tweaking it like that and having that conversation. So is there a point of no return? Probably for some, but we don't know who that is. And I don't want to be presumptuous and say, well, that's going to be that person. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Because you never know. You never know. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing that if, if you're, at, you're with type one and you don't produce any insulin, I guess that would be considered irreversible. Is, is there, mm -hmm. a, can somebody go from having type two to type one? Yeah, actually, <laughs> surprise, surprise. The type, of the type of diabetes is often misdiagnosed a lot mm. because we have, you have that typical, if you're younger, if you're thin and if you're type one, um, but then we're seeing a lot of people who are older than 40 that are being diagnosed with type one. Mm. And then we're having different other types. And then there's lots of like more uncommon types. And really with that, the best way to do that is there's a, there's a blood test. You have to, you have to go in and you have to see like, you know, in type two, there's certain uh, markers that are not there, you know? And so that's how you can tell. But a lot of times people typically go with the classic sign. So it gets misdiagnosed a lot, actually. Mm -hmm. with type. Have you ever heard of a uh, type three diabetes? Well, yes, mm -hmm. but they like the one and a half are you talking about the diabetes one and a half so i was doing i was looking at diabetes i want to say a few months ago it popped into my head it was the it said that in type 3 diabetes uh the neurons in your brain uh cannot process insulin sufficiency so they're saying that 
that has a link to like degenerative brain diseases, especially mm-hmm. Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, that's yeah, all, that's all that- I really know about it is that, is that it's the issue with your neurons not being able to process the, the insulin. Not insulin, but the that, glucose, I'm sorry. that is one of the things with the ominous octet. That is one of the um, dysfunctions. Mm-hmm. But hypoglycemia, and actually, I think a little bit, if you get too high as well with hyper, can produce dementia. There mm-hmm. is a link there as well. Mm-hmm. And so that's another reason why we want to get that, that, that glycemic target there in the middle. Yeah. Is, that, is that because um, just like when you have high high blood sugar throughout the rest of your body, your capillaries get kind of destroyed. Is that the, like the same, same thing that they think that that's going on with their brain where your blood is basically kind of, kind of thickening and it's, it's destroying your, your neurons and your synapses. Is that how that well, happens? What, what, what it does is mm-hmm. that it definitely, the sugar deposits at the nerve endings, but also with your blood vessels, they can rupture. That's mm-hmm. why in the eyes you have so many, there's they, they have the like the wool spots and the cotton spots in the eyes and you can get blindness and stuff because you'll see like hemorrhaging. Mm. That's what it does. Mm. In your experience, have you noticed specific cultures that are more susceptible to diabetes or ethnic groups? Well, yeah, they we do have what they call priority groups. So um, you have gender. The gender group is males. And then also the ethnic groups, African-American, Hispanic, Latino population in the Asian Pacific Islander population. Uh, Also, excuse me, also Native American as well. Um, There is a lot of argument over why though, you know, not that it's so much genetic, but is it more of your social determinants of health? Um, is there a link between, which we do know there is a link between like lower socioeconomic, it, clearly mm-hmm. people who, everyone in those, those groups are not a part of lower socioeconomic classes, but we do see a higher, higher risk with those who do live in lower socioeconomic um, areas mm-hmm. because of resources. Like I mentioned earlier, um, food insecurity, that's a big thing that I deal with. Um, there's a lot of food deserts, you know, if people only have corner stores, then what's in corner stores, there's not fresh produce, it's not good meat, it's mm. everything is packaged. But when you have the elderly, and they can't drive, and maybe they have to rely on someone else to go or they don't have enough money to last. So what do you do? You go to the corner store and you get the packaged noodles and you get the canned like fruits and vegetables and stuff Mm. so yeah there are some what we say priority groups but there is a lot of conversation about it not so much being genetic but like the circumstance of those groups Mm. i'm not sure this is more of a question for like an ob gynae doctor nurse practitioner but um you know anything about gestational diabetes how that forms how like the process for that because i was always mind-blowing to me like how that happens is it when women have like a predisposition to it? Is it also diet and uh, weight related? So it, it does. They do, when a woman is pregnant, they do screen her based off the same risk factors as, as the general public. Mm-hmm. So if a woman is already coming in, already, you know, overweight, maybe obese, um, if her mother, if her mother had gestational diabetes, they found that if your mother had gestational diabetes and now you're pregnant, you have a high risk as well. Mm-hmm. 
Um, they, so there's a genetic component there. So it's the same risk factors, but then again, you just have some wild cards in there too. You know, you can have very thin women that have that. And once you have gestational diabetes, you are at higher risk to have it again if you get pregnant again. And then to then later on develop diabetes type two. Mm-hmm. Is it the the stress of having a baby inside of you that causes gestational diabetes? Do you know anything about like the pathophysiology about it? No, actually, a woman's <laughs> her blood sugar actually kind of dips. Mm. So we see more of a dip, you know, and that's a lot of that can have something to do with there's a a, a higher turnover for blood, blood cells, red blood cells, because there's such, there's more volume that she Mm. has. Women have more volume because clearly they're, they're making another human being. Mm. So, you know, everything is increased in that way, that way, but the placenta and the woman's hormones kind of act, kind of counteract. And depending on what trimester she is, I'm getting a little technical, but depending on what um, trimester she's in and how developed that placenta is kind of tells you how her blood sugar is going to be. So you never, you don't test a woman for gestational diabetes until she's like in her second, third trimester, mm-hmm. because if she comes in before a certain time, they consider that pre-existing diabetes, honestly, mm-hmm. they okay. just happen to get picked up, you know? So you don't, you don't test until she's further along because that placenta has developed at this point. Okay. Interesting. And then does the does a child have a higher likelihood of getting diabetes in their life if the, yes. the mother has gestational diabetes? Yes, and those babies are bigger because the glucose is feeding the baby. Like, so just think about a baby chopped up on sugar, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so those babies come out big. They yeah. come out little chunky babies, you know? And so, and they can, they that puts them at a higher risk. That actually is a risk factor if your mother had gestational diabetes, then you could have it, and then your child could have it, and all mm-hmm. that stuff like that for just diabetes type two. Yeah, when I have my first kid, I'm gonna I'm gonna see how how big he is. I'm gonna be like, this little guy's gonna have diabetes in the future. You gotta watch out. Yeah. You'll probably meal prep for your wife. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> gotta gotta put the put the baby on like a strict meal meal prepping diet. Only the the carrots and the veggies and like the baby food, no fruits. <laughs> so so i know when it comes to diabetes lifestyle modifications are non-negotiable when it comes to diet mm-hmm. and exercise just like you mentioned are there any like superfoods that you know or the top five or top three foods that you should be consuming that helps you prevent the insulin resistance so i get this question a lot because i get the question like what's the diet what's the diabetes diet and really honestly there is no there is no research that says that there's one particular diet but the diets that get the best results tend to be like your mediterranean diets so that those are the diets that have like you know more grains they have whole grains um fish lean meats you know, if you're going to be eating meat, vegan, mm-hmm. vegan diets do very well. Vegetarian diets do very well. But here's the thing, like I said earlier, everybody has a preference. So what if you're allergic to fish? Then you can't really, you know, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And then, you know, so when you send a patient to a dietitian, that's the whole conversation is what do you like to eat? And that's actually the nutritional goal. It's actually a goal. A diabetes nutritional goal is allowing the person to maintain pleasure with eating. 
So like, they're going to ask you what you like. So I tell people, make your plate colorful, make it look like the rainbow, you know? So have your greens, your reds, your yellows and all that stuff. So pack that up, have some good protein, you know, a good, nice protein. Um, you can even mix rice and beans together. A lot of people don't think that that would be good, but you know, nice portion size. There's actually a great um, thing that you can print off online, um, the My Plate that shows you how you should section off your plate. So half your plate should really be fruit, like vegetables. Have you ever had a patient that asked you that they want to go on a ketogenic diet to lose the weight and reverse their diabetes? Yeah, all the time. <laughs> like put, put, people put, put ask remission, about- Not reverse. Uh, well, saying, put in remission, ask, not reverse. <laughs> yeah, they ask about it all. You know, I've, the acting side, all of it. And here's the thing that people say, well, which one do you think is the best? And this is my answer. Really, it is. The best diet is the diet that you're going to stick to mm-hmm. because you may get on a ketogenic diet, and keto diet, and you're like, I hate this. And then you're going to stop. <laughs> and then right. you're going to go back into what you're eating. Mm-hmm. Like if you know that you can't do like my husband, very thin man, he could never do vegan. He could <laughs> never do it. He loves cheese too much. You know <laughs> what I'm saying? But he could probably do a modified vegetarian diet. Or maybe, you know, and then it's not all or none either. Like you can be a vegan and eat meat once a week. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like nobody's going to kill you. You know, maybe (laughs) the vegan Nazis, you know, that are out there. But I mean, like you can have an egg here and there, you know, (laughs) and it's good in protein. So I do tell people like, you know, there's not one green that's better than the other. So it's not like you should give up collard grains uh over kale like some people don't like kale some people don't like spinach but they like collard greens Mm -hmm. just don't cook it till there's nothing in it you know because we can cook all our nutrition out our nutrition out and that's part of the teaching is like how do we prepare our food you know what do you season it with you know and thinking outside of the box like that yeah people always ask us about diet what diet diet's the best and what we usually tell people is like think about what actual diet is. If you have, if you're eating poorly, what is a diet to you? A diet is basically you eliminating something. Mm-hmm. If it's keto, you're probably eliminating breads, carb dense foods. If you're doing vegan, you're, you're eliminating meat. So you don't need to hop on these like trendy diets. Only thing you have to do is literally eliminate stuff from your diet and you have your own, your own diet for you. The stuff that mm-hmm. we always stress the most is give up like the sodas and those uh, high sugar fruit juices first, and then go down to maybe some kind of a, a, a food because all diets are really hard. You're just limiting something. So mm-hmm. why would you hop on something that's telling you what to eliminate? Why don't you just eliminate the things that you know that are bad for you first and then go from there? And then they actually too, and cause you know, we're in a space where like language is everything like, but you're like what you say and how you say it is like very important these days. We don't even like using the word diet anymore. We like to say eating pattern. How is the way that you eat? The pattern of how you eat. Because whatever you do 80% of the time is what you probably do anyway. You know what I'm saying? So it's like when you go and you talk to a nutritionist, a dietitian, they're going to ask you, what are the things that you like to eat? Like I know for myself, it was easy for me to adopt more of a vegan diet because I eat a lot of vegetables anyway. I don't eat meat that much. And when I do, it's probably maybe one meal out of the the day. So it was easier for me to cut things out. 
every once in a while I may want a, a piece of fish or a chicken or something like that but I don't eat a lot of dairy I just don't you know and so I'm like well when I got to thinking about it I'm already kind of eating this way already mm. so it was just kind of like and so you have to start asking people like how do you eat anyway you may find out that a person probably eats pretty good they have some good habits already and that's when you start to empower them say like you're already doing this so if you just like take down that soda maybe one a day and then the next week maybe we take it down two you know instead of doing four a day let's do three and then the next week let's do two or maybe instead of drinking the full soda how about you water it down a little bit of water mm. you know and so it's just like being creative and thinking outside of the box and coming from a space of empowerment and not like restriction. Mm -hmm. So Kim, currently, what is your role with diabetes? Are you still practicing as far as an NP and being involved with your patients? Or are you taking more of the consulting route that I've noticed where you're just helping other organizations with diabetes education? I do both, actually. Okay. I actually work with um, end-stage kidney disease patients, people on dialysis. Wow. And so so I'm, I see a lot of sick of the sick, hence why I'm so big with like prevention, you know, now. Um, but many of them were there because of diabetes, you know. And even still, we're trying to prevent even them from having to get kidney transplants, keep them out of the hospital, you know, we, you know, all of those things, you know, and so I do both. Um, I do consulting as well because I love teaching colleagues as well. Because, like, when I first started learning about diabetes, it was very overwhelming to me, mm -hmm. you know. And as I was learning this stuff, I was like, this is kind of interesting. And I wonder if other people are having the same struggle because it is a beast, mm -hmm. you know. And so I just started sharing what I know and what was working for me with my patients. And so then I started coming in and helping people with like how they implement and strategize and things like that. I was going to say, what is your mission for the next five years as far as diabetes education and where you see yourself? Ooh, I have to keep that one. <laughs> I was like, let me keep that one a little. I was like, there's a lot, you know. But really, I'm a huge advocate for the quadruple aim, you know. And I know this may be a little bit of wishful thinking, but you know, if you don't have a goal, then what, why are you doing what you're doing? You know what I'm saying? So the quadruple aim, which used to be the triple aim, it used to be increased patient experience, lower healthcare costs, and increased healthcare outcomes. But what was missing from that? The provider experience. So they increased, they uh, added that, and that is what the quadruple aim is. And if all of those things are moving together on full cylinders, we can achieve optimal health care. And I do believe in that. You know, I believe that we can get our patients happy. We as providers and we as healthcare professionals, it can be enjoyable to us. We don't have to have burnout to get good, out, out, uh, good outcomes. And ultimately, we can lower costs for us all, not just for, you know, our healthcare system, but for our patients as well, because a disease like diabetes is very costly directly and indirectly as well lots of time away from work disability it's it's just the beast so how do you think we could how do you think we could fix that how do you think we, we could cut costs and just uh bring in bring in more diabetes awareness and have less people get diagnosed with diabetes do you have like a, a solution for this 
Well, it sounds very simple, but prevention, really early detection and early treatment, you know, and um, prevention as well. Uh, what is that? I think Benjamin Franklin said it. He said an, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Like if you're doing the work up front, you won't have to chase your tail in the back end. But, you know, the argument is out there that prevention doesn't pay. Mm -hmm. I do agree with that, you know, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we have, we are seeing so many disparities in, I mean, like it's hitting our patients. They can't even afford to be sick. So it's like, if we can at least detect it early, you know, and start to change mindsets early, not just on the patient end, but also on our end as well mm -hmm. as the providers. I think that's very important that you added the fourth arm into it, the provider experience, because it is our responsibility to empower our patients and give them power to actually change and create quality mm -hmm. change that could last forever. Because too many times, especially in the hospital setting, you see physicians being very busy and they just come in, come out and write a note. And same thing with nurses. We're busy sometimes where we just hand the pamphlet for education, but we don't have time to sit down and educate. And that's so, that's so unfortunate because education is the true power to create, you know, change. Mm -hmm. Being a consultant and diabetic educator, what is the most common issue that, that you find with uh, not patient education, but education for uh, your, your clients or, or, or the clinics, what are they usually um, are missing? Honestly, it's a lot of provider apathy. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are so, this healthcare system has really done a toll on us as, as healthcare providers. Mm -hmm. And especially over these last couple of years as dealing with COVID and everything like that, it's just kind of like, we're seeing that some things are not adding up and we, you know and and so really trying to get the providers engaged mm. because people are like well they're just going to do what they want to do anyway and it's like i said again well if that's your mindset then why are you still here like just leave you know what i'm saying like that's really how i feel sometimes it's like if you feel that disenchanted just leave you know there's so many other things go teach go do something else, you know, don't bring that bad attitude up in here. You know what I'm saying? Because like, meanwhile, I'm sitting up here hearing all these soft stories of all these patients who are trying, there are so many people who want to do better, but they just don't know what they don't know. And you're coming in with your already mind made up about what this patient may or may not do. And we wonder, why we have medical mistrust, why people don't want to listen to us, why people feel like I'm just going to do what I want to do, you know? And so we have to start looking ourselves in the mirror and asking ourselves that. So a lot of that, before I can start getting into all this other stuff, it's really just, okay, do y'all even want to do this? You know, like really having to ask that question, like why even bring me in? Yeah. You know? Yeah, that, that's a really good point. Yeah, as a provider, you have, you have to be in, in, engaged in it because if you're not engaged and you're telling somebody about how they should change this, change that, and you're not engaged, they're not going to listen. They're going to feel like you're just telling them this script that you've just been, been saying this whole time. You need that engagement. Especially where sometimes we feel that physical activity is a chore. 
I know that's what I've been talking to my father lately. He thinks physical activity is a chore instead of loving it because you love your body. So if these providers have passion for what they're providing, the patient might just have this little light bulb moment that, Hey, maybe I should be passionate and love my body because there's somebody that's trying to take care of it and cares for it. I should probably take care of it myself. Yeah. Yeah. We come from a Polish, sorry, we come from a Polish background. So I know when I first started working out in, in, in high school, my parents thought I was, I was, I was crazy. It's like, wait, you're going to the gym to, to lift weights, to sweat and work hard. Why don't you just get a job? You know, because, <laughs> because yeah, because they didn't, they didn't understand the whole aspect of, of, of health. And even still to this day, they, they still don't understand it. no matter how much I talk to them about it. It's just, it's, I'm not sure if it's just they're ignorant to it or, or, or what, but they just never understood how that, how that kind of a health impacts you. And I feel that's a lot of people's things too, is that, well, why are they going to go to a gym if they already worked at a 12 hour job? You know? they're 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 tired yeah i understand you're tired but there's still you still have to do this other work to optimize optimize your health to live a full life yeah and then it's also again like i said speaking out like talking and thinking outside of the box like letting people know that physical activity doesn't mean necessarily going into a gym mm -hmm. so i have worked extensively with the elderly population and they'll be out there doing gardening work and think about it. You pick up a big old bag of mulch and you're stooping over and you're having to get down and stoop down for someone who is older. You can do a whole flower bed and you're going to be sweating. You know what I'm saying? And so like that's activity, you know, exercise is just part of physical activity, you know, telling people when you go shopping, you know, walk outside and then do the hour you know, get your steps in, you know what I'm saying? And making it where it's not like your physical activity may not be like mine, you know? Um, like I said, other cultures, they have, it's a routine for them to just walk because just it, getting those endorphins, that's a natural high. We talk about how we deal with mental health in this, this like, you know, country. After you work out, you feel so great. You know what I'm saying? Like, I literally am on my Peloton bike and I'm like, ah, I feel so great, you know, mid-workout. You start telling people the benefits of that more so than like the sweating and everything like that. Then that makes them start to think about like, okay, maybe it's more than just like pumping iron or something mm -hmm. like that. Maybe I can find something for me and it could just be just walking. Mm -hmm. Bring up so many good points. Be before we end the show, one last question that we like to ask all of our guests so if you had the opportunity to have a cup of coffee one last time with anybody, who would it be and why? Does it have to be someone who has passed away? It could be anybody. Okay. So I love R&B and I love uh, hip hop. So I don't know if you know the group Escape. Do y'all know the music? It was a 90s R&B group. And, they, and um, one of the members... Her name is Candy Burris, and she is a very savvy businesswoman. And I admire business people, but not just like the business person that just like you dig into their background and it's like maybe they already had a hand up. I like that person who was like an average Joe and they just made it out of nothing. You know what I'm saying? Like they just because that makes me feel like, well, if you were average and then I'm average, then I can make it too. And so I've always wanted to like sit down with someone like her and quite as it's kept, Master P. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. 
because it, I mean, like even now, like he is, he has amassed like this huge empire, but is so business savvy and has and still relevant even today. And so I know that's kind of weird, but yeah. <laughs> you want to tap into the mind of the entrepreneur there. Yeah. That's awesome. Kim, we want to just thank you for this awesome interview and taking the time for being on the show. You have been a wealth of knowledge sharing everything about diabetes. And I hope people find a lot of great information that's useful that could they could tell their families and ultimately maybe educate their patient through this podcast. So thank you. And we wish you success in your mission to continue doing diabetes prevention. And hopefully we could change healthcare for the better. Thank you guys for having me. This was great. I enjoyed talking with you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kim. Thank you, Kim. Bye-bye.